Our mission is to break that cycle of panic and neglect that we have seen too often with these threats because this will not be the last pandemic. It could be, but it will not be unless countries around the world, populations, communities around the world take the kind of preventive actions to um, stop outbreaks from becoming deadly and costly pandemics. Welcome to Contain This. I'm Dr Stephanie Williams, Australia's Ambassador for Regional Health Security. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of country throughout Australia and our region. We recognise the continuing connection to land, waters and community and pay our respects to Elders past and present. Today's episode is about civil society and pandemics. And who better to talk with than Carolyn Reynolds, co-founder of the Pandemic Action Network, or PAN for short. In this episode, we talk about how the Pandemic Action Network started, what they do, especially what they're doing in the lead up to this year's high-level meeting on pandemic prevention, preparedness and response. As well as being the co-founder of PAN, Carolyn is also a non-resident senior associate in global health policy at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies and expert advisor to the Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. Prior to co-founding PAN, Carolyn held leadership positions at PATH and the World Bank Group. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. So can we start, um, Carolyn, with you telling us a bit about what Pandemic Action Network is and how you got to be here? Well, thanks, Stephanie. It's been a journey over the last three years and actually one that started before COVID. Um, this, the idea that became Pandemic Action Network uh, started all the way back in 2018 and, and actually before that uh, from my work uh, involved in the response to the Ebola crisis in West Africa back in 2014, 2015. You'll remember those horrific images that went across our television screens of what was happening and that did engender a global response at the time and um, a recognition that outbreaks are increasing and that this is a threat to human health and to the planet. But um, very little was done. There were a lot of reports written, a lot of hand-wringing um, about what the world needed to do better to prevent this from happening. But then the crisis went away and uh, it disappeared off of our television screens and off of political leaders' radars. Uh, I was at the World Bank at the time and then I left to join a global health organization. And, but I really carried with me that idea that what is it going to do? What is it going to take to change the political calculus, to make political leaders uh, do something to prevent pandemics, which we know are... Um, Certainly, outbreaks are increasing in frequency, and the threat of pandemics is increasing, uh, particularly with things like uh, climate change. So how do you change minds on anything? It's not just about having the right ideas. There are plenty of ideas and knowledge about what we need to do differently. That hasn't been the issue. Experts have been screaming <laughs> off the rafters about this for decades. Uh, but it's about political will, and it's about public demand for to do something differently. So actually, um, back in 2018, myself and my future co-founder of PAN, uh, we pulled together a group of like-minded organizations, World Health Organization, the World Bank, some major foundations, civil society and private sector organizations. We were all talking about this challenge of pandemic preparedness um, and showing up at different international meetings to talk about it, but nothing was being done. So we said, let's, let's forge an advocacy coalition and come together 
uh, and align our efforts. So we had that idea back in 2018. Uh, unfortunately, no funding to get it started, so it was really a labor of love until, until COVID, until early 2020 when the pandemic really started escalating and uh, one of our uh, funder partners uh, in those initial conversations said, that was a good idea you had. We're going to give you money to get it started. So myself and uh, three other co-founders, we jumped in and we just started this up in April of 2020 and Pandemic Action Network was born. So between 2018 and 2020, was it an idea or were you in your basement after hours making plans? What, in those two years, what was happening? So I was doing a range of things. Uh, my co-founders were all uh, who, and we hadn't come together as a group at that time. We all had, were different, working for different organizations, doing different things. I was working in that space of global health and pandemic preparedness. I've spent my career working on global health and development and on advocacy for these issues, not just on global health, but on global development more broadly on education, on gender equality, um, social protection. So I've worked on many issues uh, at the World Bank and from other vantage points. But, um, but I had, I carried with me that um, passion uh, that this agenda needed more political attention. Um, so I was working for a range of partners uh, and then when, but on, on, different projects when the pandemic hit. So it was, a, it was a shift, but all of us shifted, right, in early 2020. All of our worlds suddenly um, shut down and uh, COVID became part of everybody's story. So you had uh, an idea, uh, unfortunate timing in terms of the pandemic, but a fortunate opportunity for um, seed funding. Tell us about the early days. What you, what's actually involved in building an advocacy coalition? You had four people and a sense of what you wanted to achieve. What were the first six months like? What, what were you doing? Well, it, it was crazy. Um, again, everybody, right? Everybody's worlds changed literally almost overnight uh, in terms of the way we work, the way we uh, interact with friends and family, the way we conduct our, conducted our daily lives. So um, in that sense, we were like everybody else. It's just that the pandemic was and is our business. Um, and so, yes, uh, and even three years later, we are still a virtual network. We have grown from four or five people to now um, a dozen or so people. But it's really about our partners. We have grown from a network of about uh, 20, 25 partners to begin with um, uh, to a global network of more than 350 organizations across sectors, across geographies. Um, working in many different areas, um, but all came to have come together around uh, this, the, the mission of our network, which is to both end the current pandemic that we are still in, this crisis, but to prevent the next one. So what did, in those early days and even up to now, what have you found to be easier than you expected uh, in building such a large network and advocacy coalition? In building uh, Pandemic Action Network PAN, um, you know, I and my colleagues have applied lessons learned from decades of, of advocacy, communications, agenda setting. How do you change minds and convince um, leaders, whether they're in uh, the public sector or the private sector, to drive change, to drive change for uh, the global good, to advance 
global development goals. And um, I've been fortunate over my career to work on campaigns around universal health coverage, uh, to promote learning for all, um, and maternal and child health, and have been part of building some of the existing global organizations that are committed to those causes. So uh, came at this and with, with a sense of how do you create an agenda, how do you uh, create a compelling story and a uh, and a platform that will bring people together. I've built a coalition here in the United States. I uh, was one of the founders of something called the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, which has been built around, um, uh, again, partners across sectors committed to uh, push the U.S. government and Congress and convince the American public that it's worthwhile for the United States to be involved in the world and to invest in international development and diplomacy. So came at this with experience of what does it take to build an effective coalition? Well, it takes, um, first of all, a compelling mission. And we had that, uh, certainly with the pandemic um, uh, before us and affecting everybody um, could see the impact that it had on lives and livelihoods. Uh, it is about creating a platform where people uh, feel that they have skin in the game, that they have something to benefit. It's not just that they care about the issue, but that they, um, they see the value in it for their organizations, for their missions. Um, and again, because COVID has, and this pandemic has touched, you know, almost literally everyone on the planet, um, that in a way was not the hard part. We crowded in a lot of people into our platform early. And as I said, we've grown significantly um, over the last three years. We also made it easy for partners to join. It was like, agree with our mission and uh, uh, indicate that you're willing publicly to be a part of this and uh, do your part. And for some partners, that's being a very active partner in co-creating agendas and uh, calls to action and uh, events and whatever else it will take to put these issues in front of political leaders and decision makers and funders. For others, it's just adding their name. So we make it easy for partners to be as active or um, uh, to, to play a role in whatever way suits them best. You have a range of organizations and academic institutes and um, partners. And, and across the world. But when you sign up, what do to say I was signing up today, what do I have to do for you and what are you going to do for me as the Pandemic Action Network? So what you have to do for me is pretty simple. Demonstrate publicly that you're committed to this cause and then participate in some way, whether that's in meetings, signing on to calls to action, you know, ideally, you know, committing your organization to, uh, to use your political influence, your levers of influence in whatever geography sector you have. Every one of us can touch and every one of us is an advocate in whatever we may not think of ourselves that way, but we all have a role to play in convincing our political leaders and uh, uh, to to do the right thing. And so simply raising your voice um, in whatever way you can. What we'll do for you is, one, uh, uh, connect you with other partners who are interested in this topic and space who you may um, then be able to collaborate with um, on whatever agenda you're interested in, whatever aspect of pandemic preparedness and response makes uh, is most important to you. Um, two, we're going to amplify the work that you do um, and bring that to the attention of a much wider audience around the world. And three, 
for those issues that are just too, they require all of us to come together. They're too big for any single organization to solve. And that is true about an issue like pandemics. It is a global challenge that requires global action across sectors. So um, we, we bring people together to co-create what, what should be those solutions? What should we be calling for? What, what should we be asking uh, political leaders or business leaders or uh, leaders in the multilateral space, whoever they may be, uh, what's, help us define what, that, um, what those asks should be. So in your 350 strong network, uh, do we zoom geographically down into Australia and the Indo-Pacific? I know you have a large uh, contingent and African uh, support network and base. And, 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 growing, and growing in Asia too. But tell us about uh, Australian and Asia members. Yeah, it's, um, we'd love to continue to grow that. It's been, um, you know, it's been a, a, a progressively, um, I think, almost on a weekly basis, partners, we find partners or they find us and reach out to us and say, we'd like to join what you're doing. Um, we have an Asia regional working group um, that's open to any partner um, in any country uh, that meets uh, a couple times a month to come together and um, share information, knowledge, you know, that's one of the values we bring, whether it's in our Africa regional working group, our Asia regional working group, or our global efforts, um, is to help partners share intelligence, share knowledge, get smarter on the issue of pandemic preparedness and response. And so um, that is, uh, we have uh, partners in probably uh, close to a dozen countries uh, across Asia, and um, that continues to grow. And so... If, for those listening, please join us, pandemicactionnetwork.org. We'd love to have you on board. So I had a chance to look on your website just earlier and, and clicked through to your three-year impact report. And because one of the questions I was interested in asking uh, was how do you know that you're making a difference? How do you – and do you have examples, um, you know, specific examples about the impact of PAN in advocacy or – or whatever examples you choose to, to share with us? Uh, sure. I mean, um, many things we're proud of that we know that we've um, helped to, uh, where we've helped to drive action over the last three years. Um, of course, um, on issues as big, again, as, a, as a, a pandemic and preventing future pandemics, no single actor is going to make it happen alone. But we do feel that the fact that we've we know the fact that we've created a platform and um, brought so many partners together and aligned folks behind issues has made a difference. Um, uh, we played a very significant role in pushing for the creation of the Pandemic Fund. And um, that is a new entity um, that has been created at the World Bank just in the past year. Um, and I'm proud to say with um, leadership from Asia, from Indonesia, Australia, in fact, China is a member of this as well as a contributor. Um, it's a multilateral fund uh, to focus on pandemic preparedness and response and help particularly low and middle income countries to bolster their capacity to detect prevent and rapidly respond to future pandemics. Uh, it's been something that's been a long time in coming. Again, an idea that preceded COVID that I and others were pushing before this pandemic, um, but uh, particularly under Indonesia's G20 leadership, uh, we were able to uh, play a significant role in building political consensus to get this set up. You know, as a um, someone who's been working in uh, 
public health and health security both domestically and internationally for many years. It's easy if you join the sector now, people, it's hard, sometimes you don't know what wasn't there. And as a consumer of the Pandemic Action Network, uh, as a platform, as a way to get across issues, to seek different perspectives, I, I can remember when it wasn't easy to even think about what a civil society voice was for pandemic preparedness. And, and and, you know, have personally and professionally benefited from the platform that you and, and your co-founders and now the growing network has created. I am interested in one point, though, which is um, it strikes me that you, at the very beginning you talked about a compelling mission and a human story around health issues in the past and even education in your previous life. And... Outside of a pandemic experience, a shit, you know, the COVID pandemic, one of the things that I have always wondered is, is it hard to create a human interest and sort of a catalyzing um, feel around an action network for pandemics? Because they're so broad and they affect people so differently and they affect everyone in from all walks of life and thus there's potentially less unifying that brings people together. Have you found that difficult or hard at all? Because the pandemic served us the purpose, but now we're in an interesting phase and we're having to mobilise um, will and enthusiasm and commitment yeah. in the absence of a shared lived experience. Yeah, we have unfortunately pandemic fatigue or I even say pandemic amnesia has rapidly set in in recent months since um, certainly since the spring when WHO and leaders around the world declared an end to the COVID crisis, not an end to the pandemic. There still is a pandemic. Um, thousands of people still are dying around the world, sadly, every day from COVID. Um, but a recognition that this is moving into an endemic phase and something like other infectious diseases that we will have to continue to to live with and be on guard for. Um, you know, back to your uh, uh, first point you made, um, we there was no network um, that exists. We really f have felt like we have created something, not only of value to our partners, but something that was really needed. We have filled a gap in the market, so to speak. Not that there aren't many, there are many coalitions around many issues and certainly many civil society driven coalitions. We are also a multi-sectoral coalition, uh, deliberately so, which is one unique aspect, but nothing that was focused on, that we're aware of, that was focused on the issue of pandemic preparedness and response. And so we actually feel that you know, although we were set up in the early days of COVID and, you know, uh, you know, rightly so, we're focused on the immediate crisis before us, that, that the whole, our mission, our purpose is actually even more important today than perhaps it was early in COVID because the attention, political attention and public attention has shifted away. Um, that is our mission. Our mission is to break that cycle of panic and neglect that we have seen too often with these threats because this will not be the last pandemic it could be, but it will not be unless um, uh, countries around the world, populations, communities around the world take the kind of preventive actions to um, stop outbreaks from becoming deadly and costly pandemics. In September, there's a, a high-level meeting at the United Nations General Assembly week on pandemic preparedness and response. So from your perspective, what's your read of what, you, what, what the world should be trying to achieve at that meeting and what are you hopeful uh, or less hopeful about for um, the PPR, Pandemic Preparedness and Response? It is 
uh, more challenging certainly than when we started PAN to keep the attention on the threat of pandemics. But it is an existential threat to humanity. And so that is our mission and that is our purpose. And we're going to stay in the fight to do that uh, because uh, the world does need to be better prepared for these threats. And we've seen the, uh, the dramatic impact that um, this pandemic has had, and it could be much worse the next time. Uh, but we have to talk about what can be done, not just we will not be successful if we only sort of sound the alarm, but we actually have to bring the solutions and have to bring the, the will behind it. Um, and that is what we're doing with this platform, right? Uh, you talked about the, uh, the challenges of, of bringing so many different people together across so many different sectors. Sure, it is, it is a challenge, but that's actually the power. And, you know, there may be some, not everybody comes together around every single issue, but we, we do have, by, by virtue of the platform we've created, we've been able to, um, uh, to uh, create a, a multiplier effect. Um, the high-level meeting in September um, on pandemic prevention preparedness response, uh, we hope will be a milestone. It's something actually we called for from the almost the get-go when we created PAN in April of 2020. Sadly, it's taken three years, over three years, into a major global crisis uh, to get political leaders together at the United Nations in this way to focus on this challenge. But it's happening, and we are focused on creating that as a catalyst moment to have leaders stand up, we hope, and declare, let's, we must come together as a global community and do what it takes to prevent such a deadly pandemic from happening again. And in that declaration to lay out the things that need to be done to address the issue of equity, to make sure that we don't face a situation again where parts of the world don't have access to the same types of life-saving tools that others do. So we close that equity gap, um, that we bolster health systems around the world uh, so that um, not only are we are they prepared to make people healthier, but to prevent outbreaks from spreading in the first place and becoming pandemics, um, that we address the issues of financing, that uh, there are more investments both at, at the national level, but also importantly at the global level in pandemic preparedness and response. Um, and that, uh, because that's been a major issue is that lack of funding. And I mentioned the pandemic fund earlier. That's a key tool. We need to have leaders commit to raising money. You know, the, the estimate on uh, what it will take to get the world better prepared over the next several years is about $10 billion a year. That sounds like a lot of money. Think about the trillions, literally trillions, tens of trillions that this pandemic cost the global economy um, and incalculable, really, losses in terms of lives and livelihoods. So we hope that that moment will be a moment of commitment, uh, a moment of laying out an agenda for action, but it also we need to have accountability. So it can't be a one-off meeting. Um, it needs to, there needs to be follow on, we would say annually really reviews, where is the world in terms of being better prepared? What do we have to do? Leaders coming together and assessing the situation, just as they do for climate, right? We have a climate uh, conference of parties, a climate conference where leaders gather every single year. Um, we need that same approach when it comes to pandemics because like climate, again, this is an existential threat to humanity and it does require, it's a global challenge that requires a global solution.
Tell us about you know, a couple of uh, practical examples of what your advocacy looks like in terms of how you and your team, uh, your colleagues, spend your time on this declaration as an example. Sure. Well, one of the lessons of being an effective advocate is you have to be agile uh, because uh, we, we sit outside government, we sit outside of, of uh, multilateral institutions or other institutions of power. We can influence what those institutions do, but we're not running those processes. So you have to be agile to uh, respond to opportunities, but also to forceful in pushing for those opportunities to be created, like the high-level meeting. So uh, we, on a week-to-week, day-to-day basis, what do we do? We convene meetings to bring partners together. We bring in speakers who are in some of these institutions, like the World Health Organization, like the United Nations, uh, like the government of Australia or Indonesia or the U.S. or wherever, um, that can talk about what their institutions, what their governments are doing, um, and by, but also using those as moments for us to influence their thinking and influence their agendas. Um, we share a lot of information. Every week we put out something we call our Pandemic Action Playbook that gathers news and information and um, from uh, around the world on this topic to make all of us smarter, but also give our partners a steer in terms of where they can um, where they can focus their attention and where they can be influential. We put together calls to action on the high-level meeting you mentioned. We've had over 150 organizations around the world sign a letter on sort of the five priorities that we see for the high-level meeting. So that, that has an amplifier effect, uh, where if each of those organizations were to do it on their own, it wouldn't be so impactful. But bringing that many together, one, they, they've all been part of creating that message and owning it, but then that speaks and resonates with gov governments in a different way when you bring that many people together to carry the same message. Um, so those are some of the examples of what we do day to day, and, and also then work with ourselves, each sitting in different countries, but also with our partners to influence the decisions that individual governments and organizations make. For example, I spend a lot of time here with the White House, with the U.S. government, with the Congress uh, to influence their budget decisions, their policy decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. Carol, I've so enjoyed talking with you and thank you for running us through how the Pandemic Action Network came to be and some of the ingredients for its success. And it's certainly admirable how much energy you and your colleagues and the network have to throw uh, toward such a compelling mission that you have described today. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Today we've heard from Carolyn Reynolds, the co-founder of the Pandemic Action Network, or PAN. You can find more information on how to partner with PAN by following the link in our show notes. During the episode, we also talked about the new pandemic fund. And so in the show notes, there's also a link to the World Bank's announcement of the outcomes of the first round of funding from the pandemic fund, announced not long after we recorded the podcast. In the Asia-Pacific region, grants from the pandemic fund have been awarded to projects in India, Bhutan, Nepal, Cambodia and Mongolia. Join us in another fortnight for the next episode of Contain This. Contain This is produced by the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security. You can follow us on Twitter at CentreHealthSec.